Well, tonight we're looking at the first marriage. And as John Currid says, almost all of the major doctrines of Scripture are found in seed form in the book of Genesis. And so as we look at the first marriage tonight, uh, our goal is not merely to look at it as an interesting historical fact or a piece of historical trivia, the way we might walk through a museum and see old things and think, that's mildly interesting, and then leave and forget all about it. We want to look and, and see the first marriage and see the first marriage in seed form uh, and as it's there in seed form at the beginning of Genesis and understand what it uh, teaches us about marriage throughout the rest of Scripture and what it has to teach us about marriage today. So we're not just looking at the first marriage just as a piece of historical trivia, but we're looking at marriage in order to un- understand. We're looking at marriage then and there in order to understand what marriage is about here and now. And so we're going to look at marriage there and then. That will be our first point. And the second point will be marriage here and now. And we're going to try to connect the dots and see what the first marriage has to teach us about marriage here and now and, and how we should uh, think of marriage and make some practical applications for marriage here in the 21st century. So let's begin with marriage there and then. Uh, what we see in this text, beginning right at the outset of our text, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. We see a problem in this text. Adam was alone. We've spent, this is the eighth week in Genesis, and we're in chapter 2 at verse 18. We've been going slowly in our preaching series through Genesis, but you could easily, easily sit down and read Genesis 1 and 2 together. Like in your devotional time, on the morning, you could easily open up your Bible and read Genesis 1 and 2 at the same time. It would take you, for sure, less than 10, 15 minutes. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 uh, are, are not far removed from one another. We're sort of eight weeks removed from our first sermon in Genesis, but really, these are close together in the biblical text. So let's say you opened your Bible on the morning and you started reading Genesis chapter 1. You would read, and God saw that it was good. 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 And behold, it was very good. And then you would read, and God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So this is a striking pronouncement. In the context, as we read it, we read good, 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 good six times, and then the seventh time, very good, and then we read God say in chapter 2, in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, it's important to note that chronologically, God says this prior to His pronouncement in chapter 1 and verse 31, that behold, it was very good. Chronologically. It comes after it in the biblical text, But in terms of the timeline of how things are developing, Genesis 2.18 is the sixth day. Which means that God hadn't said it's very good, and then it's like, oh shoot, I forgot something. It's not very good. It's not good that man should be alone. That's not what's happening at all. When God says it's not good that man should be alone, it's not an issue of he finished his creation and then realized he had made an oversight. The issue is that as yet, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where we're in the sixth day, as yet, the earth is not complete. The created order is not complete. There's something yet outstanding. It is not good that the man should be alone. The world was not complete until God had created Eve. Now, John Calvin says that the issue here, the problem here, was Adam's solitude, not every man's singleness. And I agree with him on that point. I think uh, we often read that as it's not good that man should be alone. And so we think, well, if people are single, that's not good. 
It's not good that man should be alone, it says right here in the text. But Calvin makes the point that the issue is Adam's solitude. The creation purposes that God had could not be fulfilled with a solitary man. The creation mandate that God gave to Adam in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, could not be fulfilled by a solitary man. Uh, there, further, God always intended for Adam and Eve to complement one another. And so uh, a world with males only would not be good. And so the world should have women in it. And so for all of these reasons, the issue was not primarily that there was a single man, but that there was a solitary human being in the garden. That's primarily what is in view here. Singleness is not necessarily a problem. God doesn't look at every single man and every single woman and say, it's not good that the man should be alone, or it's not good that the woman should be alone. The issue here is that God created Adam uh, uh, with a purpose. He gave him a charge. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And Adam could not do that by himself. Part of what God uh, intended for Adam and Eve to do was to populate the world. And that could not be done, of course, by Adam on his own. And so the issue here is Adam's solitariness. Uh, and so God provides uh, not only a um, wife, but a, a second human being and a complementary human being. This is God's solution uh, to the problem. But let's unfold God's solution in steps. The first thing that God does is he embarks on what we could call, or he initiates what we could call an awareness project. An awareness project. See, God uh, knew that it was not good for Adam to be alone. But Adam did not necessarily know that it was not good for him to be alone. I mean, think about it. He had no frame of reference. He had no idea uh, what it was like to not have a wife uh, as opposed to having a wife. Because he had no frame of reference. And so he did not necessarily know. He did not necessarily comprehend the fullness at that point of why God had created him. After all, uh, it seems that God had not yet given the creation mandate to Adam because when we go back to chapter 1 and verse 28, it says that God blessed them and God said to them. So Adam also did not know that he would need somebody else with whom to work together and populate the earth. And so Adam did not necessarily know that it was not good for him to be alone. So God initiates an awareness project, which is naming the animals. I don't know if you have ever had this thought before, but I have thought before. Um, God starts talking about it's not good for man to be alone. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God brings the animals to the man to see what he would call them. And I've had the thought, what does this have to do with that? And it just seems like two separate trains of thought. Um, but what we see, and what I've come to see as I, as I have studied this passage, is that what God is doing here is bringing Adam to an awareness uh, that he needs uh, a wife. So God gives Adam the job of naming all the animals. Now out of the ground, this is verse 19, out of the ground the Lord God has formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Now again, we might have misconceptions here. We might just say, there's a huge long line of animals and Adam's sitting at a booth, as it were, with a, with a Sharpie and a whole bunch of name tags. And as animals come by, he looks... Okay, fly, you know, monkey, right? And, and we, we sort of think of this arbitrary naming. And again, we're kind of like, how does this fit with this narrative here? And it can be confusing to us. But, but uh, we sometimes think of names as simply syllables that we utter to identify 
uh, one person from another. Uh, we might name our children perhaps with names that don't have a lot of meaning. In, in 21st century West, a lot of people just seem to choose names based on what sounds good. You think of the celebrity couples naming their kids all sorts of uh, wild and wonderful things. Uh, for instance, uh, there was a child named by a famous couple a number of years ago named Apple. Why Apple? Maybe they just like apples. Maybe it had meaning to them. I don't know. But we sometimes just think that it's just sort of syllables. But in this context, what Adam was charged with doing was not just giving uh, sounds by which to identify and to distinguish one animal from another, but saying something about uh, their identity. Now, we, don't, we can't access that, what, what Adam called them, we can't access. Well, maybe a fly is called a fly because it flies. Or what does it, what does it mean? What does monkey mean? What does it say? But, but the point here is that um, in, in, uh, in ancient Hebrew culture, naming was an act of uh, identifying some aspect of, of being or, or some intended aspect of blessing or something like that, that names were meaningful. And so part of what Adam is doing here is actually uh, exercising authority over the animals and he's also to some extent getting to know the animals now this all happened on the sixth day we don't know exactly how this all happened whether God brought to Adam uh, various um, uh, categories of animals Uh, in other words did Adam literally name every type of uh, animal on the face of the planet or did Adam name groups like the things that fly up in the sky, he called them birds, for example, or the, um, the livestock, um, you know, yeah, exactly. And so we don't know exactly the details of that, but the point is that Adam was getting to know something of the nature of these creatures and then authoritatively pronouncing something, a name for them that reflected something of what they were and what their, their function and what their purpose was. And so uh, that was what was going on here. And what we see is that this is not actually two disjointed trains of thought running uh, parallel or perpendicular in Genesis chapter 2, 18 to 25. But this is all part of the same overarching thought because what we read at the end of uh, verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the purpose of this Uh, of this naming of the animals was an awareness project for Adam. That as Adam looked at the various types of creatures, he was realizing more and more that there was not a helper fit for him. There was a sense in which he was alone among the creatures. That there was not a being like him among the creatures. And uh, so this is what is going on in this section. So when God finishes showing Adam his situation, he causes Adam to go into a deep sleep. And God creates Eve. It's important to notice here that the creation of Eve is a unilateral action of God. Adam can take no credit. Eve is created by the direct creative force of God. Who Caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Verse 21, look at it. The Lord God. And while Adam slept, who took one of his ribs? The Lord God. And who closed up the place with its, its place with flesh? The Lord God. And who took the rib uh, uh, from the man and made or fashioned it into a woman? The Lord God. And who brought her to the man? The Lord God. Adam had no part whatsoever in creating Eve. Eve was created by a direct uh, creative act of God, just as Adam was. God used material to make Adam. He formed him out of the dust of the ground. And God used material to make Eve. He took a rib from Adam and made Eve. But both Adam and Eve were fashioned by a direct creative act of God, which shows that they are co-equals, that Adam is not in some sense superior because he had a hand in making Eve. No, Adam and Eve were both uh, created directly by God. John Gill says, well, Adam was taking, quote, a comfortable nap, God made Eve. That's all Adam was doing. He was just taking a comfortable nap 
divinely induced nap, but a comfortable nap nonetheless, when God made Eve. Listen to this quote from Matthew Henry. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. You could take that and you could, you could put it on a, on a Hallmark card and you could give that to someone on their wedding day. That is some, that is some beautiful, poetic, uh, emotional language. And this is coming from a conservative, reformed Puritan. See, this is a good doctrine of complementarity. This is a good biblical doctrine of Adam and Eve, that God made Adam and Eve co-equals. Co-equals. Complementarianism is not the man above the woman, as if she was made from his feet to be trampled on by him. Uh, God did not make uh, the woman above the man, as if she was taken from his head in order to rule over him. But she was taken from his side to be his co-equal. She, as well as he, was made by the direct creative power of God. And so Adam and Eve are co-equals. But as I have alluded to already, they were not the same. They were complementary. There there is a man in uh, one of my previous churches whose name is Russ. And Russ is a strong man. He's he's about as wide with muscle as he is tall. He is a muscular, sturdy, strong man. When we read in at the end of verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. The kind of helper uh, that Adam needed was not merely an extra set of hands. And it wasn't horsepower. Because if it was horsepower, they could have used horses. Right? And it wasn't just an extra set of hands. It wasn't just an intelligent uh, being, uh, a being of equal intelligence to him like another man who could help him solve problems and who could help him lift heavy things and who could cooperate with him to train horses and train dogs and labor shoulder to shoulder with him as a man might labor with another man. That's apparently not the kind of helper that was required for Adam or God would have just made Russ. <laughs> what we see is that God made a different kind of helper. God made a different kind of helper for Adam. Kent Hughes says, Kent Hughes says, the woman was stunning. She was the prototype of all women, fresh from the well of creation. Every aspect of her being was perfect. She was perfect in body and perfect in soul. She was perfectly sinless. And as she stood on the arm of her father, God, she was there for Adam to see. Uh, As uh, Kent Hughes goes on to say, Adam saw her as a mirror of himself with some very agreeable differences. There was a, there was a complementarity. There was a, there was, it wasn't just uh, another one of the same, but there was complementarity. Not least of which is biological complementarity. That, that uh, a man and a woman have different function biologically. And there is a working together that happens biologically with a man and a woman, and there's more than a biological working together that happens between a man and a woman. God has created men and women equal but different with a view to complementing one another. Not a view like, oh, you look look very handsome today, or thanks, you look very pretty too. Not that kind of complementing, but complementing in the sense of one, one has strengths that the other doesn't have, and vice versa. Um, working together in that sense. And so God created uh, this woman who was equal but complementary, a mirror image of Adam, but with some very agreeable differences, as Kent Hughes says. And the same could be said uh, of uh, giving, what I have just said about giving Eve to Adam, the same could be said of giving Adam to Eve. Adam wakes up from his comfortable nap and sees Eve. And Eve comes into existence and sees Adam. Right? And again, you could read Kent Hughes' quote the opposite way. The man was stunning. He was the prototype of all men, fresh from the well of creation. 
Every being of every aspect of his being was perfect. He was perfect in body and perfect in soul. He was perfectly sinless. And as he woke up from his comfortable nap, uh, she, he was there for Eve to see. You could say the exact same thing. And so what you see is uh, that as uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? God is willing to bless us, to give us good things, to give us what we need. He is more willing to to bless us um, than I think most of us give Him credit for. Most of us think that we have to twist His arm in order to bless us. But Adam did not ask for Eve. Adam wouldn't have any way to ask for Eve because he had no frame of reference by which to ask for Eve. Adam didn't submit a, a... proposal with design specifications and so on and so forth. Nothing like that. All the initiative is God's and all the action is God's. God looks at Adam and sees that he needs a good gift and God provides the good gift for Adam. And so Adam's response naturally is elation. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now again, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh means that she is the same category of being. She's not a subcategory um, uh, or like uh, a category underneath uh, Adam as if I, I said that poorly. Not the way she's not a, a subpar or a, a subservient or a uh, inferior type of being the way that a dog or a horse or a monkey is, uh, but she is uh, in the same category of being as Adam, the same in dignity, the same in worth, the same in value. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh conveys that equality. She, as well as he, is made in the image of God. And uh, so Adam expresses himself uh, in poetry. We can't catch it as well in the English but in the Hebrew, this is at least, um, at least rhythmic uh, poetry, spoken word, if you will. This is at least that, if, if, not, if not musical. If Adam doesn't erupt in song, he at least erupts in poetry. And um, this is strong, uh, beautiful, rhythmic language, which gives expression to the joy and the delight that Adam had in his new bride, Eve, this good gift which God had given to him. Adam expresses relief. He says, at last, or this time, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Why at last? Because of the long line of animals at his booth, remember? (laughs) Because he's seen all the other creatures. He's interacted to some extent with the other creatures. He knows that among them, uh, there's nothing quite so beautiful, quite so agreeable, quite so complimentary, quite so equal, quite so dignified, quite so worthy, quite so valuable as this bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh standing in front of himself. So at last, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The same category of being made in the image of God. And so this is the first marriage God gives Adam to Eve and Eve to Adam. And uh, the man erupts in poetry, in in song. Uh, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the inspired commentary on this text uh, tells us that God's institution of this first marriage was intended to be a pattern for all future marriages. Because what we read at the beginning of verse 24 is therefore. And when we see therefore, we've got to ask, what is therefore? Right? So God brings Adam to Eve and Eve to Adam. And uh, they are joined to one another. And it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So the inspired commentary on this section as the Holy Spirit inspires Moses to comment on this first marriage. 
Moses says, because it was like that in the first marriage, therefore, this is how it's supposed to be with all subsequent marriages. And so we see that God's institution of the first marriage was intended to be a pattern for all future marriages. So again, what a wonderful gift Eve was to Adam and what a wonderful gift Adam was to Eve. Uh, If you're single and you are aspiring to be married, just imagine that you took a comfortable nap, as John Gill put it, and then woke up to a being of the opposite sex, untainted by sin in body and soul and ready to be wed to you forever. What a gift. What a wonderful and, and gracious gift of God. Marriage was a precious gift bestowed upon Adam and Eve by God. That's what's in the text. We've just unfolded that. That's marriage then and there. What applications does this passage have for us here and now? Let's move on from talking about marriage then and there and move to talking about marriage here and now. What we see is that marriage is God's idea. It is an institution for humans, but it is not an institution by humans. Who brought her to the man? The Lord God. Right? Who took the initiative here in joining this man and this woman together, creating a man and a woman who would fit together in body and soul, in wonderful union, in complementary union. Whose idea was this? God's. God instituted the first marriage. And so we see that though marriage is an institution for humans, it is not an institution by humans. Uh, therefore, we are not at liberty to redefine it at our pleasure. That should just be a real easy, simple, obvious, so obvious application of Scripture. Um, Archbishop Holder, is that his name, of the Anglican Church? We just read in the news... Uh, what did he say exactly? That the Bible, he's not sure whether the Bible teaches uh, that gay marriage is wrong. Mm. Was that, I, mm. I can't remember exactly what it was he said, but something along it's those lines. to say that he does not believe that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah condemns homosexuality or homosexual marriage. Okay. Okay. Alright. Well, what, whatever it was that he said. There just seems to be an undue amount of confusion. A really undue amount of confusion about biblical marriage in our day and age. Here in Barbados, in Canada, in, in much of the world. A really undue amount. Because when we look here, God joins a man and a woman together. And the inspired author of the Bible says, Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So marriage, all future marriages are patterned after this first marriage. That's just so clear in the text. God's idea is for a man and a woman uh, to be joined together in union. Not for a man and a man. Not for a woman and a woman. Not for a man and two women. Not for a man and three women. Not for a woman and three men. Not for a man and an animal, not for a woman and an animal. Like, it's not rocket science. It's actually just really clear and really simple here in this passage. The LGBTQ movement is utterly, utterly misguided. Utterly misguided. And it's no surprise when people who reject the Bible reject God's design for marriage. But what should shock us and what should be uh, intolerable in Christian circles is the argument that the Bible is not very clear on this issue. The Bible is very, very crystal clear on this issue. There's a marriage in the beginning and the rest of the Bible clearly teaches that subsequent marriages are to be patterned on that original marriage. Marriage is God's idea. It's an institution for humans, but not an institution by humans. And so we're not at liberty to redefine it at our pleasure. And so we need, we need to graciously, with kindness, with patience, 
respecting the image of God in all people, as we've talked about already in Genesis. Those who are uh, um, who would identify themselves as homosexual, those who would identify themselves as transgender, those who would identify themselves in various distorted ways. We need to go with, with love, with grace, with compassion, with patience, uh, but with clarity and with, with a holy boldness and with, with truth. And we need to explain very clearly that God has designed uh, things to be a certain way and everything outside of, the, of that is sin. The way that we need to not tippy-toe around other sins, we, we shouldn't tippy-toe around this sin either. We, we uh, shouldn't um, make any we shouldn't make any one sin the focus of our conversation with others in a way that detracts from the centrality of the gospel. So we talk to others about their sin, but if you think about other sins besides the LGBTQ movement, uh, we don't just over and over needle our coworkers about coveting coveting, 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 and we're always talking to them about coveting, coveting, coveting. We're talking to them about sin in order to help them see their need for a Savior, and we're pointing them to the Savior. And we introduce them to God's law in order first to convict them of sin, and then to be a rule of life to them after they're saved from their sin. And we should do the same with LGBTQ type sins. That it doesn't become the predominant or or exclusive subject of our conversations with people who identify themselves in these ways. But we just need to be as clear about that as we are with other sins, because it is as clear in Scripture as other sins are. And so we talk to people about God's design, we talk to people about God's law, we talk to people about their sin, and we point them to Jesus, and we hold out the hope of the gospel, of forgiveness and of cleansing, and we hold out God's law as the railroad tracks along which we move in the Christian life after we've been reconciled to God. And we, we need to do that. We need to have a clear witness on this issue uh, as we do on any other issue. And we, we can't move from here in this day and age when the winds of change are a-blowing. We just have to put our anchor down and just be clear about what the Bible is clear about. So that should actually, that honestly should just, I shouldn't even need to draw that out in a message because it should just be such a clear and obvious application uh, based on the institution of marriage here in Genesis 1. But because it's not in our day and age, I thought it was worth stopping to address that explicitly. But secondly, another application is that uh, because marriage is an institution of God and not an institution by humans, um, not only are we not at liberty uh, to redefine it at our pleasure. But we also need to recognize that there are three contracting parties in a marriage. God, man, and woman. We have responsibilities then, not only spouseward, but Godward. Sometimes um, it is hard to love our spouses for our spouse's sake. Uh, sometimes Mel finds it hard to love me for my sake uh, because I'm being disagreeable or cantankerous or harsh or impatient or whatever. And sometimes I find it hard to love her for her sake uh, for some of the same reasons because of the sin that she's manifesting at a particular moment. Um, but even when we find it hard to love our spouse for our spouse's sake, we need to love our spouses for God's sake because God has instituted our marriage, and we have obligations to God for the way that we conduct ourselves in our marriage, not only relationships to our spouse. The fact that marriage is an institution for humans, but not an institution by humans, uh, really needs to inform our thought as Christians. It's not just something we agreed to and something we can unagree to. The way that we just, we might make plans to meet up for uh, dinner with some friends on a Thursday night, 
and then something comes up and we phone them and we say, hey, I know we agreed to this, but let's actually change our agreement because I, I can't make it or I don't want to do this anymore or whatever. We can unagree to things that we agree to when it's just agreement between us and other parties. And some people think of marriage this way, like, well, we agreed to get married and now we agree to divorce. Um, these are not things that are, are at our liberty to do. We just can't agree to do whatever we want to do with marriage, whether it be to redefine it, uh, whether it be to change the nature of it, the essence of it, to dissolve it. There are, we're just not at liberty to do whatever we want to do with marriage. Marriage is instituted for us. It's a good gift from God, but it was not instituted by us. And so we don't, we are not at liberty to redefine it. And we do have responsibilities, not only spouse word in our marriages, but God word in our marriages. Uh, one application of this would be, as I've alluded to already, the subject of divorce. Some would argue that we're not to divorce at all. This is called the permanence view of marriage. Uh, some would argue that we are uh, at liberty to divorce our wives when Christ divorces his bride. Uh, because marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. So the argument goes, when he and her split up, then you and your wife can split up. Uh, others believe that there are one or two exceptions. Uh, some would say that divorce is uh, permissible uh, in the case of adultery. Uh, based on some of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. Others would say that there are two exceptions, adultery based on Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, and desertion based on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, I'm not going to try to resolve that tonight, but it is very clear that there are not like 18 exceptions. <laughs> that's, that's crystal clear. Uh, there's not like 25 exceptions. Um, we need, whatever our view on that, we need to be reticent to separate what God has joined together. What God has joined together, let not man separate. See, if we don't, unless we have divine warrant to divorce, right? and there, there are arguments to be made on, on both sides of what I just described, limited cases in which some believe that God has given warrants to divorce under certain circumstances. Unless we have divine warrant to divorce, we cannot divorce. That's a sin. Because again, as an institution of God, it's instituted for us, but it's not instituted by us. Which means we can't just dissolve a union that God has established whenever we please, under whatever circumstances we please. We need to be very slow and very reticent and very careful to look at the scriptures, to study the scriptures and to see what God's teaching on marriage is and to pursue uh, marriage the way that God has designed for marriage to be. In fact, even um, in cases where uh, some believe that there are exceptions uh, uh, where divorce is permissible in scripture, even in those exceptions, Divorce is never commanded in Scripture. Right? And so even if one would grant for the sake of argument that divorce is permissible in those cases, we should be slow and reticent to move towards that. And um, we shouldn't just think, oh good, finally, a, 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 you know, a, 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 I'm eligible. I'm eligible. That, right? that should not be our attitude. What God has joined together what God has joined together, let not man separate. We should be pursuing the, the maintenance and the purity and the honor and the integrity and the sanctity and the lasting uh, um, uh, endurance of marriage uh, um, as, insofar as possible and as warranted. Uh, by the Word of God and as, as idealized by the Word of God. And so um, that's another application that's important for us to think about in a society where we're seeing more and more divorces happening. As Christians, we need to really look differently at the issue of divorce and recognize um, uh, that the joining of two persons together by God 
is not something to be dissolved uh, as lightly as many in the world do. Uh, so th th those are a couple of applications. Another application is that a higher authority than parents has established the new family unit. Right? You look, therefore, uh, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's Moses speaking, but because he's speaking on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's God speaking. God says um, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God instituted the marriage, and God institutes uh, that there should be a leaving and a cleaving. He shall leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Kent Hughes says that his a man's first obligation and loyalties are to his wife. So many marriages fail today at precisely this point. Husbands and wives fail to leave their parents. First loyalties are not established. For married couples, uh, for singles thinking about marriage, when you get married, you need to uh, reprioritize and really uh, reorient your first loyalties in terms of family loyalties to this new family unit that you're forming. For those of us who have children, I realize that none of us in this room uh, have uh, children of marriageable age just yet. But we need to also recognize that when our children reach marriageable age, we got to respect this leaving and this cleaving. And we got to let our sons go off and become heads of their own homes. And we got to let our daughters go off and join themselves uh, to a man and, and submit to his authority and to follow him uh, into uh, their new life together and so on and so forth. We got to recognize the legitimacy of this new family unit being established because again, uh, it's taught right here in the scripture that this new family unit is God's idea, God's institution and not man's. It's not, um, even if the parents pay for the wedding, they're still not establishing this new family unit. Right? God, what, not, what, not what Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so and, and Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so have joined together, let not man separate. What God has joined together, let not man separate. God has established a new family unit whenever a marriage happens. So we have to um, uh, be careful on this point. A lot of, a lot of family stress uh, happens around issues of leaving and cleaving. Uh, so we need to get that one real clear in our heads, both as married couples and as parents uh, thinking about raising kids who may one day grow up and get married. So marriage is God's idea. It was instituted by Him for us, not instituted by us. Therefore, we're not at liberty to redefine it at our pleasure. Uh, therefore, there are three contracting parties, God, man, and woman, and so we have responsibilities, spouseward and Godward. And a higher authority than parents has established the unit. And so we're not ultimately uh, accountable to our parents in the new family. We're ultimately accountable uh, to God. We report to Him, not to our parents. So marriage is God's idea. But marriage is not God's ultimate idea. Mm -hmm. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's flip there together and read this section of Scripture. We're going to get there eventually in our morning series, and we'll exposit it at length there and then, but let's read this section tonight, beginning at verse 22, Ephesians chapter 5 and beginning at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Where have you seen that before? Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What? Which means that marriage, when it was instituted in Genesis, was intended ultimately to be a picture of Christ and the church. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage is God's idea, um, and it's a reality in itself, but it also points away from itself to something greater than itself. That's what the Bible calls typology. Marriage is a type of the marriage between Christ and His church. Uh, I have a picture above my desk in my office at home. Some of you may have seen it. Uh, Some of you may have seen it and not noticed. Uh, It's a picture of uh, a lake, some trees around the side, some uh, rock cuts around the side. It reminds me of uh, the landscape, the natural geographic landscape near where I grew up. And uh, it's this, this picture, it's a, I'm not sure what it would be, it's on, it's on cloth and it's not actually painted, is that a print? I'm not sure, I'm not sure what you would call it, but it's, a, it's an artistic rendering of some sort. I'm not an artist, so I can't specify exactly, but it's, it's in oranges and browns and blacks and reds and yellows, uh, that sort of color scheme, as if it's sunrise or sunset probably more likely, and I like that picture. I bought it for one dollar at a, at a uh, yard sale of used stuff about one kilometer from where my parents now live, and because I've been to places like that and seen landscapes like that, when I look at it, I can, I can hear the sounds, and I can, I can see in my mind's eye the trees and I can feel the wind and I can see the, the rock cuts and this to me it's beautiful because I can see that which it represents uh, the, the greater reality so to me it's a, it's a reality in itself it was worth shipping down here with all of our stuff uh, to me it's valuable to me in and of itself um, but it also represents something to me, which is more valuable to me, which is those places themselves and the, the memories that I have those places themselves. In a similar way, though it's not a perfect analogy, marriage is a picture like that that's beautiful in itself and it's something worthwhile and valuable in itself, but it testifies and points to a greater reality. Marriage is a good thing, a wonderful gift. It's God's idea, but it's not God's ultimate idea. God gave it to us as a picture of something even better. And so we wonder, why did God give us this particular picture? I think it's because the best of marriages are the deepest human relationships. Not everybody has a good marriage, and I'm sensitive to that. Um, We haven't all seen good marriages in our families of origin. But the best of marriages are the deepest of human relationships. And so I think God has given us uh, this picture of beautiful union and oneness and intimacy and love to give us uh, some kind of idea of the oneness and the intimacy and the love uh, that exists between Christ and His church. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, Jesus teaches that there will be no uh, um, giving or... Uh, yeah, let me, let me read it. Jesus says, um, In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And whatever else this verse means, it does mean this. 
in heaven, we're not going to lose out on anything that we have now on earth. In the resurrection, we're not going to be deprived of anything that we uh, uh, should like to have. We're not going to, we're not going to, man, it was way better back in, <laughs> back in the day. There's not going to be, there's not going to be things that we miss, as it were. Uh, things are going to be better. And this is not a sermon on heaven, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to elaborate much on that point. But just, I think we can all, as Bible-believing Christians, just accept that. That the future state is more blessed than this state. Which means at least this. Somehow, though we can't imagine it now, it's, there's going to be an experience of uh, such profound intimacy between Christ and His church and between Christians and one another in heaven that it's good my marriage my present marriage to Mel will be superfluous and I don't understand that fully but but there's there's something there's something wonderful loaded into that that there's going to be such intimacy that we're not going to long for and crave uh, the intimacy that we had in our earthly marriages there's going to be something better than that in heaven. This is just a wonderful truth to think about. A wonderful truth to imbibe. And as those who are married, we ought to not make our marriage to be all in the end all of our lives here. We ought to be good husbands. We ought to be good wives, as the case may be. We ought to um, really try to honor God, fulfill our Godward responsibilities in our marriage, honor our spouse, fulfill our spouse work responsibilities in our marriage. We ought to receive our current marriage as a wonderful gift from God, which it truly is. It's a beautiful and great thing that God has blessed us with. But we also ought to try to get our eyes beyond the picture to the reality which it represents. For those who are single, I would urge you not to make an idol of marriage. Sometimes we, before we're married, can have this glowing anticipation of what marriage will be. It's going to be so amazing. It's going to be so wonderful. I'm going to be so fulfilled. Everything's going to be perfect once I can get married. It's just, it's, that's it. That's the ultimate reality. And uh, for those <coughs> whom God uh, uh, blesses with an earthly marriage, <coughs> we find out that though it's a wonderful thing, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. And, and our, our marriages can't carry the weight of our idolatry. Our marriages can't be uh, as satisfying to us as God. And so if we're, if we're trying to ask our marriages to carry that much weight, they can't do it. And we find ourselves disappointed. Or uh, if the Lord does not, uh, uh, in His providence, permit us to be married in this life, then it's not His part of His decree and His plan for us. Uh, we can become so utterly disappointed because we just wanted it so bad. And as we see uh, our lives unfolding, we start to have this feeling that maybe it's not gonna, maybe we're not gonna get married. We have this sense of foreboding, right? Uh, we need to recognize it in our singleness that that marriage is is not an ultimate thing. Marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a wonderful thing, but just like we shouldn't prioritize any other good thing and make any other thing an ultimate thing, so we shouldn't do with our marriages. And so whether as singles or whether as married people, uh, we, we shouldn't ask our marriages to carry the, the, the weight of satisfying our souls and fulfilling our deepest longings and, and making all of our wildest dreams come true. This is not the kind of weight that we should ask marriage to carry uh, those kinds of desires those kinds of longings those kinds of um, uh, that kind of joy should be sought that kind of satisfaction should be sought in that which marriage represents that which marriage is a picture of the intimacy between Christ and his church we ought to pursue Christ Jesus wholeheartedly and relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus wholeheartedly as those who are uh, united to Him are also united 
to one another and try to experience uh, a taste of the profound intimacy that we will one day enjoy in heaven, even here on earth. Begin to enjoy that uh, intimacy with one another, and with Christ, which we will enjoy in heaven. And ask uh, uh, God to satisfy you with intimacy with our heavenly uh, bridegroom. Uh, now, as I talk about this picture of marriage being a picture of Christ in the church, I want to make a couple of qualifications. Um, just as Adam was alone in the garden, and it was not good that he should be alone, so God made Eve. We might have the picture and some perhaps well-meaning preachers may have drawn the comparison that Christ was lonely in eternity past or that you know there was something lacking in God and so he made you right in order that Christ might have a bride you know that he made us that God just wanted us uh, needed us so bad in eternity past that just as it wasn't good for Adam to be alone in the garden it wasn't good for God to be alone in eternity so he made us this is nonsense that's not that's not the point of the comparison being made the point of the comparison being made is the intimacy and the love that exists between Christ and His church. Not the state of Christ before we were created or before we were given to Him. God, um, uh, God doesn't need us. And Christ Jesus uh, doesn't need us. Um, and we shouldn't tell ourselves that He does. And another point of clarification is that I am not the bride of Christ. And you, as individuals, are not brides of Christ. Um, and we shouldn't think about it or talk about it as if that is the situation. Um, I was listening to a radio station a number of years ago, so I wasn't curating the playlist. And I was listening to this song, and it was about, it was about the return of Christ and the glory of that, and so on and so forth. And it was... It was, uh, as shall we say, the lead singer was doing some improvisation as uh, as he as he was singing, and uh, so it wasn't it wasn't sort of your, you know, follow the form kind of hymn. It was, it was it, there was some improvisation going on, and in the bridge, the lead singer started singing, "I'm waiting for my husband. I'm waiting for my husband," <laughs> and I was. Uh, that's that's just awkward and bad theology. Yeah, 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 I I am not the bride of Christ. I am not waiting for my husband. Right? We we together in the scriptures as Christians as God's people are called the bride of Christ. It's an analogy. It's not a literal actual thing that that um, we are actually um, uh, his his bride as if we're going to and certainly not as individuals as if we're going to walk down the aisle to Christ Jesus or something this is the wrong way of conceiving it so we just got to be clear on the issues about the bride of Christ so um, that's a that's a clarification because I, I think especially as um, as men sometimes this this analogy of the, the bride of Christ can feel awkward but it doesn't have to be and it shouldn't be. It's actually something really wonderful and something really profound being communicated here. I mentioned a moment ago that God doesn't need us. Christ doesn't need us. And we shouldn't tell ourselves that He does. But Christ does want us. And we shouldn't tell ourselves that He doesn't. In the passage that I read for you earlier from Zephaniah chapter 3, we read this. The king of Israel. Who's the king of Israel? Don't look at, don't look at that passage because I, I want to draw something out from that. Who's the king of Israel? Who's the promised king of Israel? Who's, who's David's greater son? Who's going to name? Right? Yeah. The king of Israel. And now look at, now look at the passage. Je Zephaniah 3.15. The king of Israel, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is in your midst. You see there? There's an equation of the Messiah with Yahweh, which is 
wonderful in and of itself, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem. And as we'll get into in Ephesians chapter 2, in the gospel, we Gentiles become heirs of the, the promises and the blessedness of Israel through Christ Jesus. So we can read this rightly as applying to us. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Christ Jesus does not need us, and we shouldn't tell ourselves that he does. But Christ Jesus wants us, and we shouldn't tell ourselves that he doesn't. On that last day, he will be in our midst, the King of Israel, the Lord, and he will rejoice over us with gladness. He will quiet us by his love. He will exalt over us with loud singing. This is a wonderful and beautiful truth that the King of Israel, the Messiah, Christ Jesus our Lord, is glad to have us. He he is happy to be in union with us. He wants to be in union with us. There is a profound love that Christ has for His people. Theologians don't know there's no, there's no clear consensus on what to do with the Song of Solomon. There's, the debates rage back and forth. Is it about an earthly marriage? Is it, a, is it a picture of Christ in the church? Is it a, an analogy? Is it an allegory? What do we do with the Song of Solomon? Well, if, if marriage is something in itself and it's a picture of Christ in the church, then when we come to the Song of Solomon, we actually don't need to say either or. We can say both and. That it's at least a picture of the intimacy that exists between a husband and a wife and the way that a husband and a wife ought to relate to one another. But we can also look at it as an analogy or as an allegory or as a picture or as a type of Christ and His church. And, and the... Pardon me? As all marriages are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As all marriages are. And so uh, then we can read the words of the uh, bridegroom to the bride in, in Song of Solomon and see this as typological language of uh, Christ uh, for His church. And the, the language is foreign to us. You are, as, you are beautiful as tears of my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth, oh, your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. You see, this is, this is language that is foreign to us, but we don't have to make too much of a jump to understand what's happening here. This is, this is a man sweet-talking his bride. <laughs> this is a man talking with love and affection for his bride. This is, this is not the language of a man who is ambivalent towards his bride. This is the language of a man who loves and delights in his bride, in the wife of his youth. This is the language of passion. This is the language of affection. This is the language of care. This is the language of tenderness. This is a language of delight. This is a language of joy. And this is at least, at least the way that husbands ought to talk to their wives. But, but more than that, because marriage is a picture of Christ and His church, it's not wrong to read this. Uh, when we're looking at the ideal marriage in Scripture, this is not wrong to read this as the way that our heavenly bridegroom feels about us, His bride. The way that Christ Jesus loves His people. And so we can't ask our marriages uh, to carry the weight of, of satisfying our souls and fulfilling our deepest longings. The intimacy that we experience with our spouses can't carry that weight. Uh, and we shouldn't ask uh, earthly marriages to carry that weight. But oh, what satisfaction, what delight, what fulfillment is to be found in the marriage between Christ and His church. And we have a taste of it already as Christians. And we have a growing appreciation for this intimacy that we experience 
uh, with Christ Jesus and, and with His people here on this earth as we mature in the faith, faith there's a deepening of enjoyment of that intimacy between Christ and His church here and now and it will be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth when all things are made new and sin no longer inhibits uh, the intimacy that we enjoy uh, with Christ and uh, with His people. And so there will be an ever uh, deepening of that and that that marriage between Christ and His church can carry the weight of satisfying our souls. That, that can carry the weight of fulfilling our deepest longings and so on and so forth. And so we need to uh, ask that marriage to carry that weight instead of asking this marriage to carry this weight. So marriage is a good gift. It's God's idea. Because it's God's idea, there are uh, limitations and implications and applications for our earthly marriages here and now. But we need to understand that marriage is not God's ultimate idea. That it's a picture of something deeper and more profound, namely Christ and His church. And we ought to, um, we ought to enjoy our earthly marriages now uh, according to God's prescription and, and receive our earthly marriages now as God's good gift. But we also got to raise our eyes to this marriage between Christ and His church.